Hello and welcome to the Battleground Ukraine's big interview with me, Saul David. I'm flying solo today because my co-host Patrick Bishop is on the move. And my guest is American journalist Joe Lindsley, who, in the first hours of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine last year, founded Ukrainian Freedom News, which he's been editing ever since. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Saul, hello from Lviv. Great to speak with you. Now, you're described on the Ukrainian Freedom News website as the escaped protege of the founder of Fox News. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about that, your career as a journalist up till now and what you were doing in Ukraine in February 2022? Uh, yeah, you could say I was I was running away from stuff. Uh, when I was in my early 20s, I became protege to Roger Ailes, the founder and chairman of the Fox News channel. Sort of very strange uh, circumstances, but Rupert Murdoch's uh, consigliere uh, found me. I was working at the Weekly Standard magazine as my first job uh, after university. And the guy who I would, we would call Rupert's consigliere found me and he said, my son, one day you're going to run the company. He gave me the godfather blessing. It all sounds quite extraordinary because it, it was pretty bizarre. And my first step uh, was to work for Roger Ailes, who had founded Fox News. And from the moment I, I went up to New York to meet Ailes, my whole life changed. They even sent movers to pack up my house and uh, it was uh, quite extraordinary and exciting for a while. And, um, you know, things were not what I had thought they would be when I got there and saw behind the scenes in the corridors of power. Uh, Ailes had hired me to edit a couple small town newspapers, uh, which I, I was always a newspaper guy. I loved always traveling to the UK and uh, reading all the newspapers in London from the left to the right. And so it seemed like a great opportunity. And uh, but, you know, the highest level of power politics and, and media and I was becoming, I think, not a very good person. And so with some difficulty and some good influences around me, I, said, I started to challenge Roger. I was the only one who could argue with him. And uh, one day I said, I, I quit. And he said, you can't quit. You know all of our secrets. And so I, I had to actually flee. I got in my Jeep and I fled in a car chase to the Hudson Valley. And uh, they made my life hell for some time. But I, I remembered why they liked me. I knew how to fight back. And uh, for several years, I did, you know, sort of crazy things. It was hard for me to get a job with someone like that, you know, so powerful after me. I worked for an eccentric billionaire. I actually managed an Irish-Ukrainian gypsy folk rock band, uh, really trying to escape my media life in New York. And it's, just, it's a pure coincidence that it was uh, a Ukrainian band. This was in 2014. We traveled America in uh, the old tour bus of the Allman Brothers. And uh, that was my first... Uh, introduction to Ukraine. That was during the year of the Maidan revolution. And then several years ago in 2018, Hollywood was uh, releasing a TV show where Russell Crowe played my boss, played Ailes, and another actor was playing me. And I really just wanted to get away from America uh, during that time. So I set off on a one-way ticket. I flew to Budapest. I started traveling around. Those travels brought me to Ukraine. Uh, and then uh, in 2020, uh, still roaming around the world, uh, doing other kinds of jobs. I came to Lviv from Stockholm to give a lecture on media on some of my ex, you know, escapades. And that was March, 2020. I planned to be there for two weeks and then the borders closed for the pandemic. And I think I was tired of traveling around. And I said, I think Ukraine is going to be a pretty free country during the pandemic. I already knew a lot about the Ukrainian spirit. And so I stayed the entire pandemic. And when, you know, it was sort of possible to travel normally again, January 2022, uh, you know, I still have many friends and sources in Washington uh, from my old life. And uh, we knew Russia was going to invade. They knew. It was pretty clear. And so I said, 
there's got to be a reason why I'm here. Maybe this is my redemption as a journalist. I knew so much about this country. I knew so many people here. So I said, I'm going to stick around every day uh, until victory. And uh, from those first uh, sort of terrifying hours of February 24th, I've been here every second of the full-scale invasion. And uh, as you were saying, I mean, you guys are you know, sticking with this until victory, however long it takes. And uh, there are times where you say, ah, what kind of promise is that? But I'm glad that I've been here because every single day, Monday through Friday, without uh, taking a break, I, uh, I get 10 minutes a day on Chicago WGN Radio. And that audience has been incredibly loyal. The host, Bob Surratt, uh, is fantastic. They've never given up on, on Ukraine. I didn't want people to get bored of this topic. Uh, and so I'd say probably in uh, April 2022, if I didn't really try hard to get stories, you know, the personal stories of the war, uh, the American audience could lose interest because, you know, the Russians, you know, how many times can we talk about Bakhmut, keep people captivated as they're driving to work in America? And so I started to travel the country and we realized that we could raise money uh, to get supplies for soldiers and hospitals, you know, because I'd been in Ukraine for so long, I had so many good connections. I knew so many people who were fighting uh, in different ways. And so we created Ukrainian Freedom News as our volunteer project to buy trucks, drones, anything that people need uh, for people we know. And, uh, and then every single day, Monday through Friday, uh, without a single day off, I've, I've had these 10 minutes a day uh, to talk about Ukraine, to talk about the history, the culture, the politics, uh, and the people to this American audience. And we share that at UkrainianFreedomNews.com and on YouTube. Uh, as well as on the radio uh, every day in Chicago. It's extraordinary for us to hear. Uh, we've been talking about a lot about the uh, the potential impact of political differences in America might make on the war, the likelihood that Ukraine is going to keep getting the supply, military supplies it needs um, if there's a Republican victory next year. Is that a concern that you have, Joe? Is one of the reasons that's driving you on as an American that you feel that America needs to stay strong in all of this? Yeah, absolutely, Saul, and I feel a personal responsibility for that because I know many of these people who are Ukraine skeptics. You know, in those first hours of the full-scale war, even people I know well were calling me saying, come on, is this real? I mean, the level of conspiracy theory ridiculousness uh, in America can be quite strong, but I know those people well. And so I said, I, if I can find a way to try to reach uh, the, the Ukraine skeptics, and I even I understand why there is skepticism. I mean, my first job out of college uh, from the University of Notre Dame was at the Weekly Standard magazine, the magazine that pushed for those horrible disasters, which I now believe were horrible disasters in Iraq and Afghanistan. But back then, I just fully believed it and went along with it. That was sort of, you know, the, that was, became my sort of community. And, um, and with friends who served in the, mil- in the U.S. military and many others, you know, we saw, all had awakenings together wait, come on, you know, this is not, you know, what, what was the point of these wars? Bill Crystal was a great mentor and a friend, but I firmly now reject uh, that philosophy. I think a lot of it was, uh, well, we, we can go into the details of why, you know, I would reject that. But because of that, I think many Americans are, are burned by that experience. And so when they hear of an uh, American government wanting to support a war, their knee-jerk reaction and an understandable reaction is to oppose it. And so, but what I've realized here in Ukraine, this is, this is totally different than those wars. Ukraine is a vibrant democracy. It's people who are willing to fight for that democracy. They don't need any, they're not asking anyone else to come here and do the fighting. And actually, a lot of times, the military industrial sort of machine and some of the people I used to work with, they don't necessarily want a quick victory for Ukraine. 
they want, you know, they believe they some, some sectors uh, and some people in the Pentagon and places in Washington uh, like to have long wars far away from the states for different different reasons. Sometimes philosophical, sometimes financial. But but it's very hard to separate for for Americans. You know, we think in a very binary way, left and right, and to say that even for example, when Washington is supporting Ukraine, it's not always it's not the support that people think it is. It's not that. Washington, you know, I mean, it's hard to remember now. I mean, of course you remember, but those first days and weeks of the full-scale invasion, that the support was tepid. I think so many, you know, people in Brussels and uh, and Washington were hoping that Ukraine would fall and the problem would go away. And it's hard to remember that now, but the support was very slow. And so because I came from that background, uh, I feel a special responsibility to try to reach these Ukraine uh, skeptics in, uh, in the States and, you know, I also had the benefit of uh, having some great mentors on the other side of things. Um, I was not only a product of the neocons, but uh, I studied under friends of Václav Havel in Prague uh, in the Czech Republic. So I got to learn about the history of the Velvet Revolution, the fight against communism. I studied under a great Argentine political theorist, uh, Guillermo O'Donnell, who stood up to the regime in Argentina. And so I had all this when I found myself stuck here. You know, I thought I was coming to Ukraine to sort of hide away from the world and just live a quiet, simple life. But I found that everything I had in my life, all these different experiences, uh, put me in the exact right place uh, to share the story of a country that, I mean, the whole story of this is the story of the Maidan Revolution, which I think is as extraordinary, if not more so, than 1776, because the people banded together, and amazingly, they took control they kicked out one of the most corrupt regimes, which is, you know, the regime was connected to, to Moscow. It was amazing how the individual people, by working together, could take control of their country from really from an incredibly powerful force and a force that's so powerful that now they send millions of dollars worth of missiles uh, to Ukraine every week uh, to stop this movement of the people. And, you know, when Americans, you know, this seems like an idea Americans would embrace. And you look at the Americans who supported the, uh, the Ottawa truckers, for example, protesting some of the COVID restrictions in Canada. And I can't I have such a hard time understanding why there's such an adoration for the Ottawa truckers who actually went home when uh, Trudeau seized their bank accounts. But there's no, in, in the same sectors, there's no admiration for Ukrainians who are willing to face bullets to stand for, for freedom. And, and this is such an incongruous thing, but it's my mission to keep chipping away at it. Because as you said, uh, when, with these upcoming elections, I think we will be in a very hazardous place uh, and that's, you know, Ukraine, Ukraine's got to prove a lot this summer. And the best I can do is to keep sharing the story with Americans. Joe, we've long been speculating on the podcast that one of the chief obstacles to Ukraine winning the war and recovering its territory, all its territory, of course, is the West's unwillingness to give it all the military kit it needs to do the job. It seems to have been drip feeding. And let's not kid ourselves. It has made a big difference. I mean, we, we're aware of that in the UK. I'm sure you'll confirm that in Ukraine. But it almost supports your argument about the sort of long war theory that this, frankly, suits some people in the military industrial complex without getting too conspiracy theory about it, because we're very much a podcast that dispels conspiracy theory. But but is there something in that argument that this gradual release of, of important and game changing kit has been deliberate? It's uh, that's why I, can, I want to try to help dispel the, the conspiracy theories. But because I knew these people so well, and I, I mean, a lot of the people my old colleagues in Washington think I'm crazy for being here. They say, this is not something worth dedicating your life to. Forget it, you know? And uh, while so much of the regular people in the world are inspired by Ukraine, 
Uh, a lot of those people in Washington are, are jaded. And I think, you know, there's Henry Kissinger, with whom I used to go to baseball games when I was in New York at the Fox Box. Uh, and I always expected to get some kind of uh, great wisdom from him. But we just talked about baseball. But he had an article uh, in The Spectator, the, uh, the American edition of the UK magazine, in uh, last December. And he said that the world needs Moscow in the global equilibrium. And this is certainly the attitude of so many people in the Pentagon who can't imagine a world without Moscow, without a powerful Moscow. And like, they're, they're too afraid to even think about it or too timid in their thinking or too lazy. There's different motivations. But it really, I mean, they really just can't even imagine that. And there was a, uh, when I was reading some of the tributes to the, the people on the Titan, the submersible, Someone was writing a tribute in a, in a UK newspaper praising these guys and saying that they were pushing dragons off the map. And that's exactly what Ukrainians have been doing, pushing this dragon off the map that people have to live in fear and tyranny, like the people of Hong Kong or you know, so many people who are oppressed around the world. And big dragon here is Moscow, which has been a tyrannical regime going back to the days of the czars and, of course, the Soviets and now Putin. And Ukrainians are pushing this dragon off the map. And so many people in Washington are too, uh, too afraid to, you know, they, they, that'll shake things up too much. Uh, and I think a lot of it is simply that. It's simply fear. Uh, we can't imagine because we've been with this Moscow, uh, you know, it's almost like training wheels in our mind. We've existed this way for so long. And I, I think, you know, a lot of the, the elites are afraid of like really an unfettered democracy. And, you know, it's sort of people here are upset that, you know, Ukraine gave away the nuclear weapons, you know, for which um, Bill Clinton really, he, he actually apologized for that. But I think if Ukraine had kept the nuclear weapons, somehow I think that Washington would not have, not have allowed the Maidan revolution to happen because you would be giving, you know, they're, they're, you can't control that at all. And, and even when you see some of the headlines now after this circus that happened uh, in Russia over the weekend with Prigozhin and Putin, uh, people are, they, they almost... Even though Putin has been so horrible and so evil, I see headlines and commentators saying, oh, but we kind of need him. Like, you know, we're too scared of the alternative. Uh, and they really are afraid to think of, to imagine a world where there is not this tyrannical force. And the same applies to Beijing, by the way. But right now, the clear and present threat is, is Moscow. And, uh, and so I think that's it, uh, Saul, is this, uh, if you're here, you have a different perspective. You have a courage by being here among the people. And that's why so many of the uh, volunteers, uh, whether they are military or civilian, who come here to help, there's a lot of soldiers, uh, retired American soldiers, who come here. And what, uh, one of them summed it up very well. He said this was his redemption mission. After the war, he spent his whole career fighting for Afghanistan. He couldn't sleep at night. He had horrible PTSD. And then he saw what was happening in Ukraine, and it was so clear, good versus evil. And he said, I'm going to go to Ukraine and redeem myself. And he said, when he's here, he has so much peace. Uh, and it's the same that, you know, and even I was meeting with, there's this great kitchen called the Frontline Kitchen. And every day uh, in Lviv, they make 20,000 meals uh, for soldiers in the front lines. And it's this extraordinary collection of people from everywhere from Texas to New Hampshire to Germany, Columbia, uh, men and women, grandparents, young people, and they come here to volunteer. And last week, uh, we had this, you know, the three Russian suicide, uh, Iranian suicide drones came over the Viv skies. And, and for many of these people, these volunteers, that was their first time hearing a battle, hearing the sound of war. 
and they still stick around. They're still there as I speak across the street from me, uh, making food in that kitchen. And there's such courage and inspiration there. And when, when, when you see that type of micro courage, you become less afraid of Moscow and its nuclear threats. So I think if some of the people in Washington and some of these Ukraine skeptics just spend some time here, you know, you think of, I think of the Joe Rogan show, which every day, you know, talking about how to be, you know, live at the edge of human excellence and take an ice bath every morning. Here, you don't need that. Just come here and experience it. And I really want to encourage those people on a human level before, you know, making their political decisions to come and see this human excellence and courage is here every single day. Okay, we'll take a quick break there. Do join us in part two. Welcome back to the second half of our interview with American journalist Joe Lindsley. Joe, I want to come on to the uh, Wagner mutiny in a second. Uh, Before we get there, I mean, one of the things we've been concentrating on in recent weeks, and we're anticipating it for an awful long time, of course, was the Ukrainian counteroffensive, the Ukrainian offensive, possibly a better way of expressing it. It's a couple of weeks in. Can you give me a little bit of an assessment of the way ordinary Ukrainians are reacting to this? I mean, is there any kind of sense that they're a little bit disappointed that things haven't been happening more quickly? Or do they still have enough faith in their leadership, both political and military, to believe that, you know, victory is still possible? I would say there's a great sense of patience on this. And first and foremost, I know that from my friends who are in the counteroffensive, who are Ukrainian soldiers. And I got a video from uh, one of them a few days ago last week, uh, and you just see how methodical it is. Like the snipers are walking alongside this this beautiful country road in Zap or somewhere Zaporizhia or Donbass, and you have the armored vehicles going along them, and, and and the Ukrainian soldiers are working to make sure that the armored cars are not blown up, uh, not ambushed by the Russians. Every once in a while, they have to pull back intelligently because there's uh, incoming Russian fire. And in that little video, I just I saw how methodical and patient it is. Uh, when I was talking with my, my friends, you know, they are themselves patient. They this is the land that their land, their home, their freedom, they're fighting for, and they're so used to it now. After 16 months, uh, even people who weren't warriors before are now battle hardened warriors, and and they actually are finding a way to enjoy it. And I think if you look at Kozak history, the Kozaks are always fighting people from the left and the right. And so they had to find a way even to enjoy life under constant threat. And Ukrainians do that so well. And so when I talk with my friends who are fighting or they send memes and they're still joking around, everyone got good laughs out of the, the Wagner situation. I think that was the best part we could get from it was simply a good laugh. But that counteroffensive is uh, slow and methodical and, and Ukrainians are patient. And unfortunately, though, um, well, I'll strike that word from this, but the, those same friends that sent me that video uh, they were able to capture a lot of Russians, but they themselves got horribly injured. Uh, and, and so the, the dam- you know, I have several friends who've died in the past uh, several weeks. I mean, the toll, as with Bakhmut, is very steep and very difficult. But there is uh, there's an incredible sense of patience here, not just among the soldiers, but also among uh, the civilians and the people and the foreign volunteers who come here. Okay, Joe, let's turn to the mutiny. I mean, you know, extraordinary events on the weekend. We we were, you know, as the world was watching with bated breath, and I'm sure all Ukrainians were, as to see whether or not the dragon was about to be slain. He lives on for the moment. But is there a sense in Ukraine, certainly we feel it in the UK, that this is a serious wounding of, of or a serious damage to Putin's credibility and that sooner or later it, it may presage his downfall? 
possibly, of course, from within, uh, as so nearly happened with the mutiny. The first sense I got throughout Ukraine on Saturday was no one wanted to celebrate uh, celebrate this too much because, you know, we remember the Kerch Bridge, the uh, October 8th. We still don't quite know what happened or who did it, but people celebrated. And, you know, they, they needed that moment to celebrate. And on Monday, October 10th, there were a lot of heavy heads as uh, the country woke up to Russia's largest, most coordinated strike at that point. And no one wants to have that again. No one wants to be complacent. So Saturday, uh, people were sort of smiling about it and laughing at, uh, you, know, the, you know, the dumb Russians. And it gave them a nice moment of comic relief. But no one put any great stock in it. I think as we look at it from, um, from the Western perspective, you know, I have several friends who have been working very keenly for 16 months on this project of the breakup of the Russian Federation. Like, you know, when, when there's victory for Ukraine, the way to make this long lasting, you have to break up the Moscow power and, and have Russia and break up into many different republics. Now, when, whenever I mention this idea to, you know, friends in the Pentagon and others and uh, elite think tank people, they laugh. They say, this is not possible. It's a dream. It's a crazy Ukrainian dream. Well, now no one's saying that. No one's laughing. They're actually thinking this is possible after those events on Saturday. And no matter what it was, even if that was a, um, there's all the different theories, right, about what was going on there. Uh, maybe it was a false flag, some elaborate ruse, but whatever it was, it's a sign of weakness. This is not the country that everyone thought could take uh, Kiev in three days. So the argument of, of Ukrainians and of people who, who support Ukraine, or, you know, the, the keenest supporters, like Boris Johnson, when he was speaking at that, the recovery conference in London, he said, you know, before we talk about all these nice economic things, right now we need to get every, all the supplies Ukrainians need to put an end to this. And we see Russian weakness. Now's the time really to move, to allow Ukraine to strike into Russian territory. The questions that people are afraid of, I think the Pentagon's afraid. They don't want to talk about Crimea. They'd rather, you know, just forget about it. And uh, it seems, it just doesn't seem possible. They can't believe it. But Saturday's events in, um, you know, the mutiny, whatever you want to call it, uh, should give people at least some encouragement that actually this is possible. And when we talk about supplying Ukrainians, I mean, you know, Ukraine is really, this is not, Ukraine's not a regime. It's the people. It was the people the first weeks uh, of the full-scale invasion. The government was kind of a mess, and the military was not ready. And it was the people that rose up and protected their cities, especially places like Kharkiv. That was the same story in 2014 and in 2022. And so Ukraine is the people working together to supply the soldiers to fight. It's civilians who are now soldiers. By the way, that's when when we hear like uh, all the talk of war crimes and attacks on civilians, it's also easy to forget so many of these soldiers wore civilians on February 23rd, 2022. They were civilians. They were not warriors. Um, and so, like, for example, Saul, now our little outfit, Ukrainian Freedom News, like so many other little groups around Ukraine, uh, every week we're working to raise money. Fortunately, I speak on Polish TV every Monday, and they have a huge American YouTube audience. Uh, I think people are frustrated with our American media. And with that audience, we've been able to, last week we bought a truck, uh, for a soldier this week, we're buying uh, night vision for a medic so we can save uh, soldiers' lives. You know, so at the very micro level, we need all these, these supplies uh, to help individuals do their work. And then we need the big stuff, uh, the, the jets, the tanks, the ammunition from the West. And crucially, uh, of course, the permission to really go for it and, and to take back Crimea and to hit the places in Russia from which these missiles are sent. Yeah, Joe, we've been saying exactly the same thing. And I think that one of the uh, startling aspects of 
the Wagner mutiny, if it was genuine, and we, we sort of err on the side that it probably was, is how completely undefended uh, Russia is because it's got its best people such as they are in Ukraine and it feels that it doesn't need to properly protect its borders. In any normal war, it would have to do that and every strategic option would be on the table for the the top commanders in Ukraine. But they seem to, as I've already mentioned, uh, be fighting with one hand tied behind their back. With that as a preface, do you see any sign of war weariness among the Ukrainian people, uh, you seem to have answered this in the negative already, that would indicate that there might be some pressure on their leaders to negotiate a peace at some point that might mean not recovering all their territory? No, not for a second. I mean, yeah, there's war weariness. People are tired. People have lost their businesses. There's, a, you know, people are wounded. They've lost, uh, you know, if they, if they still have their lives. There's many who've lost limbs. I know many of these people. And one thing about, you know, when I was mentioning Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson and those people earlier, this is the best self-help book you could imagine because everyone is going through this together. And so, you know, I mean, every day I have friends, uh, whether they're Ukrainian or foreigners who call or text, they're having a, you know, they're struggling. And then, you know, when you struggle, you reach out and you get stronger, you take a rest and you get back to it. You get back to your work. And that is the, that's everyone here is committed to the goal. And you know, you can have moments when you fall down and you get tired, but no one, not a single person I know here ever would want to negotiate or, or surrender anything. And, you know, I was at an event recently meeting with people from the Crimean Peninsula. And, you know, you think about it, what it means to negotiate and surrender. You are letting people live in Russian hell, you know, letting Ukrainians live in occupied cities. I'm sure you saw the story of that uh, in Berdyansk in, in Zaporizhia on Friday before the Russian circus or when the Russian circus was beginning, the Prigozhin circus, uh, the 16-year-old boy who had been, uh, he's lived under occupation uh, for over a year, and he was briefly uh, in a Russian prison uh, in, in his hometown. And when he was a prisoner, he lectured the Russians on Ukrainian history, and I think they, they kicked him out of the prison. And so he was free uh, in the occupied city. He found some weapons and with some friends, and they went and started to shoot the Russians. And he made a video before he did this, because he knew he was probably going to get killed. He said, death is on the way, my friends, uh, Slava Ukraini. And the 16-year-old went to fight. And this is, you know, because it's such hell to live in, a, in an occupied city with no freedom, uh, no hope, and to be constantly the threat of the soldiers can do whatever they want. This is life in Russia. This is what Ukrainians do not want to live like Russians. And, and there's, so, there's already been so much sacrifice. It would dishonor the memory of those who've suffered uh, to, to give up. It would force people to still live in Russian hell. And so, no, no, Saul, I don't see. And that's one of the most beautiful things about this is this, this true, fierce, wild spirit. And for so long, for centuries, the Kozaks and the Hutsuls and all, all the different tribes of Ukraine and the Muslim uh, Crimean Tartars have w simply wanted to be free, you know, here in the wild fields and in the mountains. And finally now, I mean, 2014 is when they really got it, but now they have to pay the price for it. And this, is, this has been their dream for centuries, and they're closer than they ever have been uh, because of the support of the West. And I'm sure you guys have talked a lot about the, um, uh, the, the first Crimean War on your podcast. And there's some str strange, I mean, obviously very different, but you know, that was the first war where there, was, uh, there were f photographs and telegraph, and people could uh, follow along from, from home. In fact, there was a song called uh, Vastopol by an Ohio musician. And he was just reading the newspaper back in Ohio in the 1850s, and he made this uh, little tune uh, inspired by Crimea, 
And many people think that that song helped create modern American rock and roll. So that first Korean War, people were following along. You had people like Florence Nightingale, uh, who came from the UK, inspired to go and help. And now we see that in such an exponentially uh, maximized way, because this is the first war with Telegram. And I think Telegram has enabled so many people to really feel the emotions of what it's like to see the horrible destruction. Uh, And it's the first war where, you know, people are filming it on their phones and uh, whether they're soldiers or civilians. And it's amazing. I mean, you think of Iraq and Afghanistan when reporters were there, they were always under the control of the U.S. military. This reporters are free here. You can just go and talk to whomever you want. And so this is the first war we really get to see the true nature of it. That's what has made this possible for Ukrainians is being able as a democracy to connect with free people around the world. And even that's why we have, you know, people who listen to WGN radio every day and they send money, you know, to get night vision to uh, Ivan, the medic. You know, they have this personal connection uh, to the war and sitting in your kitchen in California, you can be just as much a part of standing for victory. And I think of all the genocides that have happened in human history and they happened because the regimes could just roll over the people and there's no way to share their story. You could easily silence people. That's very difficult to do now. And thank God for that. That, that, That's why Ukraine has this energy, not only because their own spirit, but because they have people all around the world who still care about it, who still send money, uh, who still listen and pay attention. And that's an incredible force. Great stuff, Joe. Thanks so much for coming on. Well, what an extraordinary interview and what amazing work Joe's doing. I just love the story arc of his career, protege to Roger Ailes, the founder of Fox News, being dragged into that whole kind of neocon world, you know, meeting all kinds of people, Rupert Murdoch, Henry Kissinger, but actually having enough sense uh, to realize that he wasn't becoming a a very good person. He needed to get out. I mean, how dramatic was that? The car chase, even just leaving the Fox News offices in New York and eventually finding himself in Ukraine, where, as Joe puts it, it was an opportunity for redemption. Coincidence, of course. Yes, he was there, kept there by the COVID lockdown, but uh, was also fortunate to be there, or unfortunate, I suppose we may say, on the day of the full-scale Russian invasion. But it was brilliant timing for Joe in that sense, because it meant that he had a purpose in his life again as a journalist, set up this extraordinary organization, Ukrainian Freedom News, which uh, we have the link on the program notes to today's program. If anyone wants to find out more about Joe, the work he does, the daily interviews which are filmed uh, for WGN Radio in Chicago, all the extraordinary things he's been doing in Ukraine, raising money and just spreading the word about Ukrainian spirit. There were so many fascinating points he made. He understands the neocons very well, of course, from his background as a journalist and his connection to Fox News. And he knows exactly the type of enemy that needs to be combated in terms of the weakening of support for Ukraine if the Republicans get into power. So it's not just something Patrick and I have been imagining. Uh, Joe points out it really is a genuine issue and the way to combat it is to spread the word, to make it clear to Americans that Ukraine, the fight for freedom in Ukraine is very different to the other foreign adventures that America and the West more generally have got bogged down in recent years, in particular in Iraq and Afghanistan. And both of those and the way they turned out give us every reason to uh, want to avoid foreign embroilments. But I think, you know, I, I agree with Joe. Ukraine is a completely different case 
And it's different, not least because at this stage anyway, America doesn't have to send boots on the ground. It can support Ukraine to the hilt with weapons and equipment and give it the means to do the job. Um, as for the mutiny, of course, last week, well, Joe's very clear that the uh, Ukrainians didn't overdo their reaction to it. There was quiet celebration. But he and I both believe that this is a big game changer and that Putin is terminally damaged and that sooner or later, in Joe's words, it will probably lead to the breakup of the Russian Federation. Well, we'll have to wait and see how that turns out. But what is not in doubt from Joe's interview is that the Ukrainian spirit and determination is unbowed. The soldiers at the front are quietly determined, confident and patient that sooner or later the counteroffensive will make serious inroads into Russian defences and that Ukraine one day will recover all of its territory. We'll wait and see. So do join us on Friday when we'll be discussing all the latest news and answering listeners' questions. And Patrick should be back from his travels. Goodbye. Goodbye.